Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So a G20 agenda that has been totally hijacked by a bilateral between the President of the United States, Donald Trump, and Chinese President Xi. A much-anticipated meeting potentially deciding the fate of markets for the rest of 2018. Joining us to discuss is Jonathan Femby, T.S. Lombard Chairman, and he joins us on the phone. Good morning to you, Jonathan. I just want to get a handle on what your expectations are coming into this weekend and what it will look like Monday morning. Well, I think uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, of course, about uh, the Trump-Xi uh, meeting, partly because we've had a lot of kind of stage-managed leaks uh, from the U.S. side, with very little, uh, on the other hand, from the Chinese side. Uh, I think the two men will meet. There is, I think, a possibility of uh, some kind of deal, which would probably be fairly superficial uh, and would involve just having more talks, having some kind of more framework institutionalized dialogue. Uh, But the fundamental differences between the US and China remain, and they go far beyond tariffs. This is a much bigger uh, contest between these two nations, which, uh, you know, takes the form of the talk over tariffs, but has more strategic uh, elements to it. Jonathan, the conversation so far has been framed almost exclusively through what does Trump want? What does the President of the United States want from this? What does President Xi need? What she needs is to show himself, fundamentally what he needs is to show himself as a strong leader of a new China. Uh, that is to stick to the kind of agenda which he set out for the country, for the Communist Party and for himself at the big Communist Party Congress uh, just a year ago. Uh, he can give uh, ground on uh, some areas, uh, market liberalization, uh, allowing foreign companies to take sole ownership uh, of enterprises in China and so on, but only in as far as those do not affect the basic strength of the Communist Party state. John, wonderful to have you with us uh, this morning. Folks, uh, Mr. Fenby, not only definitive on France, but his Penguin History of Modern China is basically the new Spence. It's the shut up and read it book. You buy it. You don't actually read it. You just sort of walk around with it to look cool at school. John Fenby, you can define like Jonathan Spence what this word patience means to the Chinese. Is President Xi comes to Buenos Aires meeting with this unique president of the United States, what patience will be displayed? What will be its character? Well, I think uh, she is here for the long term. We've had the the lifting of the presidential term limits, of course, in China, which give him the the potential to remain uh, in power for as long as he wants. And he sees himself in those kind of historic terms as the worthy successor to Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, uh, and so on, and setting really a new era for China, moving into uh, a, a... a more evolved uh, economic system, but with the Communist Party's strength um, always uh, increased. And as I just said, he's not his patience will consist in not allowing any short-term deals which uh, could shake that. Of course, on the other hand, he's got a whole raft of challenges at home from the economy, through society, through the environment, uh, and so on. 
which he's got to deal with at the same time. And this trade war yeah. really comes at a pretty inconvenient time for Xi Jinping. John Farrow, do you understand that John Fenby's classic is 816 pages? I, the only one that read this thing was Michael McKee. I think we I call think that a doorstop, don't we? That's doorstop. <laughs> That's doorstop Tom, I, wish you good, I wish you good luck with it. Just dip, dip into bits. Well, dip into it. What do, you, what do you think is the most yeah. important chapter right now, John? Talk to me about that, what we really need to know going into this meeting to frame it beyond just this weekend. Well, we need to know whether these two leaders, uh, Trump and Xi, can establish uh, some kind of mutual interest in continuing, setting up and continuing a dialogue. And that's what's been missing. I mean, there's no doubt that China was caught, caught off balance by Trump, by the tariffs, uh, by other U.S. Uh, moves. And it's, uh, in a sense, it, it, it read Washington pretty badly wrong, China. It's got to get uh, that right now. And it's got to have confidence that uh, it can establish some kind of working, lasting relationship with the Trump administration. And of course, that isn't easy, partly because of the way the president uh, is pretty volatile in his uh, statements, uh, and also the uncertainty as to who is actually running policy under him. Is it Treasury? Is it the more hawkish trade uh, representatives? Uh, China is a bit at sea, I think, in this. And one of the important things at this dinner, when they look at each other across the table, will be to say, hey, let's have some clarity in this relationship. Jonathan, you'll remember that phrase from Neil Ferguson and others, Chimerica. It wasn't so long ago we yeah. were talking about China and America needing each other for various different things. Now we're talking about increasing tension, two countries just on the path towards collision. In fact, maybe we've got that collision already. Do you think it's better off looking at this as America versus China and not just the president of the United States, Donald Trump, versus Xi Jinping, because this is something that could transcend administrations, go beyond just 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. You, you put your finger on it there. What has been striking and where the Chinese got this pretty badly wrong uh, during the course of this year is the extent of bipartisan support for the White House and for the tough line with China. Uh, I think the era of constructive engagement, as it was called, which we saw under Bill Clinton and others, is past now. Um, Trump's uh, tariffs, they may have been brutal, but they've acted as a kind of rallying uh, cry, I think, uh, for uh, America vis-a-vis -vis China. And China has to reassess its own policies. Right. Uh, and that is not uh, proving very easy. Let me reset the morning for you. We welcome all of you across the nation and worldwide. Bloomberg Surveillance, John Farrow and Tom Keane. Many moving parts today. The drama in Washington a little bit going on in Europe and for Global Wall Street, Deutsche Bank really front and center with a very difficult morning, uh, just a little bit away from a seven euro handle on Deutsche Bank, a new record uh, weakness. Michael McKee with us in Buenos Aires. We're going to finish up here with Jonathan Fenby, of course, outstanding on China and the cadence of China. Jonathan Fenby, my experience with China is it's always about food. It was that way with the emperors you studied of hundreds of years ago. It's that way with President Xi. What have you and your team seen recently with food inflation in China? Well, that's uh, undoubtedly food inflation is uh, building up in China, largely because of pork. Pork is extremely important in China. It's a big driver of CPI uh, inflation. 
and we've had the the pig disease spreading uh, through China, uh, maybe going outside China, according to some reports over the last couple of days, uh, and that is sending up uh, food uh, inflation uh, in China. There's also the question of if China switches away from U.S. agricultural products, whether it'll get into higher-priced imports. Uh, And, of course, it's trying to ramp up self-sufficiency in food, uh, but that is a very old story in China, um, and I think they're still going to be dependent, particularly for soy, on uh, lots of imports. But, John, I think the issue that we're getting at here, outside of just pork, is that they've got some domestic issues that are distinct from the trade discussion that will live beyond this weekend and into next year and beyond. Absolutely. We've had, we are in, in the process of a slowdown uh, in growth in China. I think the Xi administration is serious about getting to grips with the debt uh, issue, uh, yeah. at least capping that and reducing uh, the, the degree of leverage. But at the same time, they're stuck because they also need to um, keep a certain level of growth going uh, in order to keep uh, the citizens of China generally happy with the regime. And this is a a very acute, uh, sensitive balancing uh, issue, which uh, the trade uh, dispute certainly doesn't help. John Fenby, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated uh, this morning. And again, his book on China, I'll get it out on Twitter and on Tom Keen Books, is just absolutely fabulous. Absolutely fabulous wearing signing gray this morning in Buenos Aires as Michael McKee. You wear a light gray suit for every signing. And this is a multilateral signing or what in today's world looks like a multilateral moment of the new NAFTA of America, of Canada and Mexico. Michael, you have followed this story from day one. Is there any emotion or angle or body language to this signing, or is it just another G20 event? It's not just another G20 event, although it is not the final word because now the agreement has to go to the legislatures in the various countries for approval. And in the United States, that could be particularly difficult. For Donald Trump, it is obviously a moment of triumph. He promised a new NAFTA deal. He got a new NAFTA deal. Even if it's not significantly different from the old one, it is a new NAFTA deal. Uh, The outgoing Mexican president, Enrique Peña Nieto, managed to get it in under the wire. Peña Nieto leaves the signing ceremony, Tom, heads straight to the airport to fly back to Mexico City. His term is up at midnight tonight. So for at least two of the participants today, it is a significant day. Is this where multilateralism basically peaks for the whole weekend, Mike? Because it looks like it's all about one meeting and it takes place tomorrow. Yeah, that is uh, pretty much the truth, John. And uh, it it is true in the room as well, because uh, we have not seen a lot of cooperation between the United States and Canada in recent months over uh, various issues. The Canadians very strong in their condemnation of the Saudis and uh, their condemnation of uh, what Russia has done with Ukraine and the U.S. much more circumspect about both of those things. But you're right, it's uh, all about the U.S.-China meeting tomorrow with a little bit of emphasis on Vladimir Putin's meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, the uh, Saudi prince, and whether it will have any impact on oil prices. Mike, you've been there for 24 hours now. I I want an idea of what the mood is like there, because for me, I I look at a G20 in Argentina, and there's a lot going on in the world, and it's been totally hijacked by a single meeting, a bilateral. What is the mood like outside of the US and Chinese camps? Do they feel like they're there for no reason? 
No, because there's a lot going on um, for the various ministers who are here. Uh, the heads of delegation have a lot of bilateral meetings between themselves. Shinzo Abe meeting with uh, all three leaders. He's the only uh, uh, one of the G20 who is meeting with the, the top three leaders here, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, you've got Theresa May here making the case for Brexit. She's meeting again with EU leaders, and then she's going to talk to the rest of the G20 about what it means, try to sell it as a positive for the global economy. Um, Mohammed bin Salman, important for him as a sort of rehabilitation tour here, try to get back in the good graces of some of these leaders and also let them know he's going to be in charge in Saudi Arabia, so they've got to deal with him. So each has their own agenda. Probably the uh, saddest, if, uh, if that's a proper way to describe it, would be Mauricio Macri, the Argentine president, because uh, the themes that he right. set forth, sustainable food development, uh, that sort of thing, are being definitely overshadowed here. If you're just joining us, folks, Michael McQue McKee from Buenos Aires, John Farrow and Tom Keene in our studios in New York, the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers as studios in the blue screen with the three flags in front. Uh, the American flag, the Canadian flag, the Mexico flag, over in circles, I believe my math is nine flags on a Friday, with three lecterns and three chairs at a single desk awaiting the signing of President Trump, Prime Minister Trudeau, and President uh, Peña Nieto of uh, Mexico as well. Michael McKee, you are our G expert. Uh, Ian Bremer says G0. Maybe we would say G, G McKee. What's the difference between a G8 meeting and a G20 meeting? Uh, 12 countries, Tom. Uh, actually, there are 38 <laughs> delegations here when you include the international organizations like the IMF, so this is much more than the G20. However, uh, what this organization was designed to do was bring in economies of significant size or influence that are not the eight biggest in the world. Yeah. Now, there aren't eight. It's back to G7. They kicked Russia out after Crimea, Crimea. but uh, the G20 includes countries like Argentina, like Saudi Arabia that have smaller economies but play a major role in their regions or in the world. Right. Uh, the idea was that they would be able to work together on global problems, but as we're yeah. seeing, it's uh, not that easy. I should point out, Tom, you were mentioning the signing ceremony. The presidents are not signing the NAFTA agreement. Oh. They're signing an authorization for their trade ministers to sign it, and as soon as they are done, they will get up, and Robert Lighthizer, Christian Freeland, and uh, Ildefonso Guajardo will get up and come up and actually ah. sign the document. So you'll have six people signing today. The, the complexities, and they all have to hand out pencils and pens, cross pens, no doubt. Yeah. That's, just, that's what you do in America. You, you sign like 200 I, I cross pens. I love that line on, on the difference between a G8 and a Do you know G20. why that is? Isn't it, isn't it a G7 now? Whatever, you know, don't get it complex. That's because McKee <laughs> went to the Pharaoh School of Charm. Oh, did Why he? Why don't you continue? It sounds like he did. Um, Michael McKee, beyond this, there is a subplot here, and it's around oil, and it also includes the President of the United States. What are you hearing in Buenos Aires about the potential for some kind of agreement around the oil market? Well, we went into the weekend, John, thinking that we wouldn't get an agreement because Vladimir Putin had suggested he was okay with $60 oil. Now we've dipped below that into the 50s, and then you start to get into a problem for the Russians as well as the Saudis. Saudis need a higher oil price in order to keep things going there. And uh, if the oil price dips too low, it starts to affect American production as well. So uh, there is a possibility 
that the Russians and the Saudis could agree on some sort of production quotas. They did the last time they met a week before an OPEC meeting, and it caught the world's attention. Uh, so the oil industry watching this meeting very, very closely. No guarantees, but there's some thought that if you were going to try to cut production, two of the three biggest producers would be where you'd start. Will the President of the United States be happy if the Saudis do get that agreement to cut production? No, he would not be, and that puts pressure on uh, Prince uh, uh, Bin Salman because he wants the United States behind him. Uh, Donald Trump did him a big favor by not uh, going tough on him after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, and he, uh, in, a, in a sense, uh, owes President Trump something. So it may take a lot for him to agree at this point to some sort of production moves. It, it may take a little more time before he can do that, put a little more distance between himself, the murder, and uh, the president. Uh, but uh, at, at some point, the Saudis do need more revenue than they're going to get from the price of oil in the 50s. Michael McKee, Bloomberg's very own and one of our finest, joining us in Buenos Aires, Argentina, as we await the signing of the new USMCA agreement, waiting for the leaders of Mexico, the United States and Canada to appear in Argentina for that signing ceremony. I want to bring in Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives founder and president who joins us here in New York City. Julia, your expectations for the weekend, what are they? Well, it's interesting that this whole dynamic around oil because it's it's Trump, President Trump may not understand that now actually declining oil prices is problematic for a significant part of the economy too. It benefits consumers but then we saw, for example, in 2015 when oil prices tanked, we saw investment tank. Um, so we've got a significant energy industry that's an important part of the recovery. They wouldn't be too happy if we see oil prices keep dipping as they are. Julia, your work over the years, and this comes out of your uh, gathering of parchment at the University of Texas, Austin, mm -hmm. years ago, is an acute understanding of auto process and particularly auto process and that border between Mexico yes. and the United States. You've got a GM announcement. Mm -hmm. I want you to speak to the people of Michigan right now who think SUVs are going to be made in Mexico. Should they be made in America? Can they be made in Texas? Well, a lot of trucks, actually Toyota has significant uh, manufacturing operations in Texas, and a lot of the, the Sun Belt has attracted uh, auto sure. manufacturing, but there is, you know, competitiveness issues in terms of labor costs that are, you know, not going to go away, uh, and the NAFTA agreement addresses them to some extent, but, um, you know, one of the unappreciated parts of the tax bill was that, yeah, actually, there are now reduced incentives to move, oper move operations overseas because you're not taxed on right. overseas profits. So if your market is overseas, and increasingly for these automakers, for GM, their right. market is overseas, it may behoove them profit-wise to shift operations there. Let's go to the north in Canada. Michael McKee, you were knee-deep in these negotiations. Your fan and mine, Don Cherry of uh, Hockey Acclaim in Canada, was out yesterday on the, the value of a Canadian-made General Motors car. Was automobiles the vast part of this discussion? I mean, was that Christian Friedland's number one focus, autos in Windsor? 
it was the number one focus of all three negotiators. Uh, the Canadians not particularly happy with GM because they worked very hard to set up NAFTA to keep the auto industry going in Canada. And it's an interesting decision. Uh, I'm not sure exactly of the math. You'd have to run some models on it, Tom. But the whole idea that a certain amount of production has to be made by workers making more than $16 an hour, 40% of the North American production, uh, was based on the idea that a significant number of those automobiles would be produced in the United States and Canada, where wages are above $20. So uh, the, the, if you take some of the Canadian production offline, I'm not sure if that uh, doesn't affect uh, the way this deal would be executed. Now, we're a long way from that because it has to be ratified by right. Congress, but it is an interesting wrinkle. Mike, busy weekend ahead. After this signing ceremony, what do we need to be looking for? Well, in terms of NAFTA, it goes to uh, Congress. You've already seen some Republicans in the Senate oppose it. Uh, the U.S. Uh, the, the administration strategy was to try to sell this to Democrats, assuming Republicans would be on board. Sell it to Democrats as a left-leaning liberal uh, document because it uh, provided more worker protection and would push for higher wages mm -hmm. uh, in Mexico as well as the United States. But if they've got Republicans who are against it, it may have right. to change their strategy. And, of course, the Trump card for President Trump would be to announce he was withdrawing from the original NAFTA and give members of Congress a choice of the new NAFTA or nothing. So it, it is a long road ahead for it, and there are predictions it could take most of 2019 to get it done. Michael McKee, thank you so much from Buenos Aires. John, the Toyota propaganda that Dr. Coronado speaks about, $23.4 in direct investment, 10 manufacturing assembly facilities for Toyota across America, nearly 1,500 Toyota and Lexa dealerships, and 136,000 direct and dealer employees. That was written maybe 12 months ago, So let's talk about ago. the auto sector. We wake up Monday morning. Mm -hmm. Let's just say they've shaken hands, they smile at each other, Julia, and mm -hmm. things look okay. How much longer do we have to wait before we start talking about auto tariffs again? Probably not long. I mean, I think uh, the notion that we're going to resolve any big issues or get any real meaningful trade information um, out of these meetings, that's just not realistic. We may get some nice noises between China and the U.S., but the latest actual proposal from China has been deemed unacceptable by uh, Lighthizer. Uh, Trump's trade advisor and um, on autos we hear that Trump is sort of got the itchy trigger finger on on uh, auto tariffs so I think you know w these issues are going to keep coming back to the forefront they're not they're not going this weekend isn't going to resolve anything well there will be some people who wake up Monday morning there will be a few that anchor their expectations not for the rest of the year but for the rest of 2019 based on the mood of the weekend how much of a mistake is that that would be a huge mistake. <laughs> that would be a huge mistake. Uh, we've got a lot of wood to chop in terms of these trade issues and, um, you know, some very big decisions that will affect the outlook that we, we just won't know. Uh, we won't know right up until the beginning of 2019 whether Trump is going to impose the next round of tariffs and how far he's going to go with them. And that's going to be meaningful. The lateral means mercantilism for mm -hmm. our audience when somebody says it's mercantile or zero sum mm -hmm. translate that what does that mean well it's it's the view that there's a fixed pie and that globalism you know globalization isn't about expanding opportunities it's it's about us versus them and so we've seen that kind of develop more in the political dynamic in europe 
um, certainly in the United States. It's less of a dynamic in emerging markets where globalization has been so clearly beneficial. And I think that's where China's trying to sort of step into the void and um, serve as the trading partner and the signer of uh, multilateral agreements. And uh, we'll see how this evolves, but certainly this weekend isn't going to settle uh, anything. And these trends are pretty fraught after a steady trend towards yeah. opening up since World War II. We're now seeing seeing that turn around. A at bit. times of economic stress and at sometimes economic crises, G20s can work. Yeah. In early 2009, very effective. Right. 2016 in Shanghai. Yes. There was always the a suspicion Accord. that we had the Shanghai yeah. Accord. Are you confident that if we enter a period of economic stress, dare I say crises, that you could have an effective G20? You know, I'm not, I, I'm not hopeless. <laughs> I, I think that we still have a lot of common uh, interests and motivations to come together in times of stress. I guess the worry is that we're seeing more cracks than we have before. And so there's a little bit more worry that times of stress might lead to more stress rather than um, a unifying dynamic. What I'd like to do right now, folks, is not get into the nite grite of G20, G2, G0, whatever, but actually try to take a broader view away from the news cycle. Someone qualified to do that is Ian Bremmer of Eurasia Group. You've seen him everywhere. I think, I, Ian, have you been on CNN like 14 times in the last 10 days? Uh, I don't think that's humanly possible. It's, uh, well, what we're thinking maybe you have been. Everybody wants to talk to you. I just want to talk to you about American foreign policy philosophy. Zakaria talks about a hub and spoke. There's a Westphalian model back to the 17th century or whatever. Can't remember. What is our foreign policy going to be in the next five or ten years? Um, we have to decide as the United States whether we want to have a seat at the table in helping to construct what the next post-American world order is going to look like, together with other countries, and we'd play a pretty significant role. Yep. Or are we going to abdicate and respond to what other countries, most importantly China, come up with? And uh, over the course of the last 10 years, and especially the last two, it increasingly looks like we're taking the latter uh, decision, maybe by default, maybe not intentionally. Um, and that's going to be a world we're going to be less happy with. The, the backdrop of this is what I'm going to call Lockean individualism, which is in the United States, we like to wake up and every man for himself and failure is an esteemed view. And there's other cultures as well. Is our past getting in the way of a successful future, given the new technology, speed of information in the world? Well, I mean, I do think there's still an awful lot to be said about American entrepreneurship and failing fast and failing frequently so we can try new things. I mean, the Chinese are now a technology superpower, and they're putting an enormous amount of money directed by the state into new technologies like the 5G system, like artificial intelligence. Um, but, you know, those are not a series of moonshots that could fail or could succeed. The Chinese are putting enormous amounts of money into a couple of what they think are very proven baskets. Um, I, I still think that it's much more likely that um, from a technology perspective, the Americans end up doing much better as long as we continue to attract the top talent. 
um, because we are going to be much more flexible. And what happens, I mean, you remember when Al Gore was talking about the information superhighway, and he wanted to build fiber, like, all over the country and all over the world, which, you know, in 2018, you look back, think about what an incredible mistake that would have been in recognizing that within 20 years, people aren't using fiber anymore. I, I mean, you know, you have to have the ability to fail. And the Chinese have a harder time with that than the Americans. But the Chinese are much better at long-term strategy, and the U.S. government isn't doing that. And that's particularly damaging for all of those people in America that aren't entrepreneurs, that aren't capitalists. They just need to be taken care of by the community and by the government for a hard job and a hard day's work. Ian, headline coming across the terminal. Um, Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer says he would be surprised if the China dinner fails. Are you that hopeful? Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that I feel very confident with all of the work that has been done between the Americans and the Chinese over the last month and the run-up to this meeting and dinner for it to fail. I, I really don't think it'll be a disaster. The question is whether we will get between these two leaders something that looks like a framework agreement, a la North Korea and the United States, which doesn't mean we're friendly, but it does mean we can take a breath and we can move away from this short uh, countdown on escalation of tariffs in January 1. That would be a huge win. The markets would love it. It's not clear we're going to get that. But I, I have been a little bit more optimistic than most because even though Trump beats up on China. He doesn't beat up on Xi Jinping personally. And as we all know, he's more than capable of insulting individuals when he feels like it. He wants to show that Xi Jinping is maybe even an equal, certainly close, that they're the two adults in the room and they're the ones that can actually get something done for the world. So Ian, you've got better visibility than most on these topics. And I'm actually really interested in what you think the minimum condition of success actually is on Saturday at that dinner. What is it? I think minimum condition of success would be that both leaders agree that we should now be engaged in substantive discussions, negotiations around trade, intellectual property, deficits, and other issues, and and give it a timeline um, that would allow um, for uh, a step away from from tit-for-tat escalation towards trade and technology war. That would be a minimum condition of success, and I think there's a good chance we meet that. Ian, uh, just we're going to run out of time here, but thank you so much for your support this year. We look forward to a year-end view uh, with Eurasia Group. If you are worried about the state of the nation, coast to coast, if you're worried about the law, justice, law enforcement, whatever your politics, this is without question my interview of the day, indeed my interview of the week. Garrett Graff wrote one of my books of the summer, Robert Kaplan, The Return of Marco Polo's World, and also Garrett Graff's The Threat Matrix. I can't say enough about it. It's a rolling history of the FBI. And Garrett, we are thrilled to have you on from scenic Vermont today. And I want to go right to the opening. The final minutes of George W. Bush's eight years as president ticked away as Bob Mueller stepped down onto the inaugural platform. Is the Bob Mueller now the same Bob Mueller that opens the threat matrix? Uh, Absolutely. And I think what you see is exactly the same person that everyone expected when Rod Rosenstein appointed him as special counsel. You, he is deeply methodical, very careful, uh, and incredibly thorough. Um, I mean, this investigation, every single court filing that has come out of it, indictments, plea agreements, 
uh, or, or anything yeah. else has been deeper, more detailed, more knowledgeable, and more insightful than anyone imagined that he possessed prior to his public steps. Uh, with a must-read, folks, is Garrett Graff's uh, essay of yesterday in Wired magazine going over this detail. Mueller, Cohen lied about Trump Organization's Moscow Project. Garrett, what happened yesterday? What's the sea change that leads to the execution patterns of Bob Mueller that you did in the threat matrix. What occurred yesterday that was so distinctive? Well, the significance of Michael Cohen pleading guilty to lying to Congress about his work on Trump Tower Moscow it, it is in deeply significant and has become almost more significant as every hour has passed and the reality of what he is saying has set in. Uh, Bob Mueller, in his 17th month investigation so far, has identified two separate criminal conspiracies that aided Donald Trump's election in 2016. One was a criminal conspiracy run by the Russian government at the highest levels uh, that was focused on cyber operations and information influence operations. And then the second was uh, a, a criminal conspiracy spearheaded by Donald Trump and Michael Cohen together, uh, aimed at campaign finance violations around hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and others. What Bob Mueller told us yesterday in court with Michael Cohen's guilty plea is that the central figure in one of those criminal conspiracies, Michael Cohen, was actively engaged in trying to contact and seek assistance from the central figure in the other criminal conspiracy, Vladimir Putin. Garrett, I'm wondering if you could just step back for a second and enlighten people a little bit about the personality of Robert Mueller and how important he feels it is to keep tradition and what you even described as recognizable totems of the past in place. And even to the point of how he wears his watch says something about it. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a man um, who was shaped deeply by fighting in Vietnam. He was a Marine platoon commander uh, in Quang Tri province in 1968-1969, where he received a Bronze Star with Valor uh, for leading his men in combat and, uh, and was also shot, uh, receiving a Purple Heart for being shot in an ambush. And uh, so he came back to the United States and spent most of the rest of his career, nearly 50 years in public service, mostly with the Justice Department, and has, uh, as you said, sort of still wears his watch on the inside of his wrist like a Marine officer afraid of that a glint off a watch will give away a hidden position. And when he was FBI director, he was famous for always wearing a white shirt. Uh, remember, he took over the FBI on September 4th, 2001, led to this wrenching transformation of the FBI from a domestic law enforcement agency into an international intelligence agency, primarily focused on counterterrorism efforts. And I asked him at one point why he was so methodical about always wearing the white shirt. I mean, it was a joke around his top aides. And he said, you know, I was leading the FBI through a time of incredible transition, and I knew 
that I needed to make sure that people understood that this was still the same FBI. And in J. Edgar Hoover's time, every FBI agent wore a white shirt, and that was what I wanted to do to show everyone that this was the same organization that they had signed up to serve. And this is someone, uh, you know, between mm-hmm. those two jobs, the Vietnam and uh, being a Marine in Vietnam and leading right. the FBI after 9-11. One of the things that I think is so important to understand about Bob Mueller's character is he looks at leading this. Uh, special counsel investigation, the, you know, one of the most important, consequential, high profile, controversial, uh, probes in American political history. Right. He probably wakes up every morning and thinks that this is only the third hardest job he's ever had. Uh, yeah, and the, the crystal moment in the threat makes, uh, matrix, Garrett, where he goes into that hangar in Scotland and tries to piece together a, a broken airplane. Uh, certainly life changing as well. Garrett, who has his back right now? He's in Vietnam and people had his back in Vietnam and on and on and on. Who has Bob Mueller's back in 2019? Well, I think one of the things that has been very clear over the last 17 months since his appointment is that Rod Rosenstein has actually done a very able job of protecting and sheltering Mueller's investigation, Um, and that there have been some unlikely allies along the way. Don McGahn, the White House counsel to President Trump, we now know, really spent some time uh, working on ensuring that Bob Mueller didn't get fired, that that Mueller's probe had time uh, and space to complete its inquiry, mm-hmm. as one would expect under the American tradition of the rule of law. Is is oh, go ahead, Pim? Please, I got eight questions, but I'm, no, no, go jump. ahead. I... Is it matter to Garrett Graff that there's a Democrat House now? I mean, is it really at the margin going to change the debate? Does Bob Mueller care that there's a there's a Pelosi House? Well, it does, and, and and I and I think that one of the things that's really important to draw a distinction here is that congressional oversight is an important and legitimate part of the constitutional checks and balances that our founders put into place, and that that's an entirely normal process. It's not supposed to be a partisan process. You know the. The whole point of co-equal branches of government is that they mm-hmm. each have the ability to I- investigate and check and balance each other. So the fact that uh, that the Republicans in the House and the Senate have so thoroughly given up on oversight of the executive branch over the last two years, that is more the historical aberration than the Democrats coming into the House and planning an expansive series of oversight hearings. And one of the one of the first areas where I think we are going to see that that really matters is building off of Michael Cohen's guilty plea yesterday right. that the House Intelligence Committee has a whole host of transcripts where Democratic members have been saying that they believe that witnesses before their committee lied right. under oath to Congress and that Devin Nunez the House Intelligence Chair, the Republican House Intelligence Chair, has prohibited those transcripts from being passed over to prosecutors to investigate for perjury charges. And so I think in January, you're going to see those transcripts get the criminal referral 
that they probably deserve. Garrett, we're out of time. Uh, I have to leave it there. Thank you so much for the revisit. Greatly appreciate it. Again, The Threat Matrix, uh, my book of the summer. Garrett Graff, can't say enough. See the Wired Magazine uh, piece as well. Cohen lied about Trump Organization's Moscow Project. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.